Good evening and welcome to Rare Book School, Summer Session 1998, Week 2. The next lecture in this series is me, Terry Bellinger, uh, speaking from this podium uh, tomorrow night. Our speaker tonight is both a former Rare Book School faculty member and a welcome Rare Books School and Book Arts Press lecturer. In her spare time, she's president of the American Antiquarian Society. Ellen Dunlap. So it's a great pleasure to have her here. Thanks, Terry. It's a great honor for me to be here this afternoon and to participate once again in Rare Book School, which has always seemed to me a wonderful microcosm of all that is best about the world we all have chosen, the world of rare books and special collections. As in the field at large, here there is an easy mixing of administrators and curators, collectors and conservators, dealers and aficionados, experts and perpetual students like me, all sharing common interests, little concerned with rank or station, learning from and teaching each other. I have always considered it my great good fortune to have stumbled early in my career into our little corner of the book world, a corner filled with highly significant collections and wonderfully welcoming people. When I took the Rare Books Librarianship course from Ann Bowden at UT Austin in 1972, one of our assignments was a who's who, a list of 25 or 30 individuals which we were to identify before the next class meeting. What significant contribution to the Anglo-American world of rare books has each of these people made, she asked, adding, and they're all still alive, so you won't have an obituary to make it easy. She further explained that while some might be found as authors in the card catalog, it was not for their published works alone that they had made it to the pantheon of her list. Now, these were the days before AltaVista, Hotbot, or Switchboard.com. We had no magic internet machine into which these names could be typed that would spew forth answers or clues to our search. Instead, we had the great fun of digging around in the stacks, poring over lists of contributors to PBSA, looking through annual reports and newsletters from libraries, checking out programs from conferences, and scholarly symposia, any place a clue might be found. I recall that the hardest one for me to ID, ironically, was Ian Willison, but I finally stumbled across his name in a list of British civil servants and got at least partial credit from Ian, the full credit answer being compiler of volume five of the Cambridge Bibliography of English Literature, just published and not yet cataloged. My point in recalling this ancient anecdote is simply this. In the course of only a few years, I came to know many, if not most, of the people on that list. I heard them speak. I chatted with them at parties. We shared taxi cabs, and by some, I was honored to be called friend. I hope each of you feels, as I do, that this sort of easy interchange is still a hallmark of our profession. Of course, to find out who's who today, one need only consult one reference, Terry's Book Arts Press telephone book. But it is thanks as well to his efforts here at Rare Book School 
his teaching, his introducing, his hospitality, that we can continue to view our profession as a small community into which new colleagues are readily welcomed as friends. And so it is in keeping with this air of presumed familiarity that I have drafted my remarks this afternoon. My topic is as announced. I intend to explore the dynamics of change at one institution, the American Antiquarian Society. Although every talk I ever give is a how I did it good at my library talk, I decided that this one should take a slightly different tact, an admittedly self-indulgent one. And I intend to share a bit of the story of the still recent AAS leadership transition from my own personal perspective. This is the kind of egotistical talk that one dares not deliver before one's own staff or board. Too much me and not enough we. But as it is just among us friends here, I hope it will be kindly received. We're all new at something, we're all new at something at least once, right? These are rambling musings organized in four parts, but I've tried to give a chronology to them, so I'll begin at the beginning. Part one, an introduction to the antiquarian. In 1991, buzz around the job market rumor mill was that the legendary Marcus McCorson was retiring from the legendary American Antiquarian Society. Was there an heir apparent? How could anyone fill his shoes, wear his many hats, tireless fundraiser, ardent promoter, assiduous collection builder, ceaseless encourager of projects and institutional improvements? AAS was Marcus's magnificent obsession, and he was synonymous with the institution. Who would dare apply? All this was idle speculation to me, for I knew the society only from a distance, and Marcus only slightly better. To me, he was one of those pantheon types with whom I had struck up a passing friendship. In February of that year, I had seen him, along with the legendary Tom Adams, at the funeral of the legendary Edwin Wolfe, and was especially pleased when Marcus and Tom, two of Edwin's oldest and dearest friends, came after the services to the Rosenbach to join us, a crowd of Edwin's young acolytes and minions, for a Rosenbach-style wake, with drinks as Dr. R. and Edwin would have had us serve them, straight up and continuously coming. A great respecter of institutional traditions, I certainly did my best during my tenure as Rosenbach director to maintain its fine reputation as a giver of great parties. We even christened the annual gala fundraiser the Rosenbachanal. <laughs> the Rosenbach style, as a jewel box of a place with, oh wow, collections, which nonetheless wears its learning lightly, suited me well. I love being in the mix of Philadelphia's great cultural institutions and usually considered the Rosenbach's small size to be of strategic advantage. Implementing change rarely entailed more than a conversation with one's colleagues around the kitchen table as we took our morning coffee. Resources, though limited, were ours to allocate as we saw fit. And I thought we were doing lots of pretty smart things with those resources and with the resources of generous funding partners at Pew and the other local foundations. But of course there were moments, like the day we were all sitting at the table and the roof started leaking, 
or the day we realized that we had been robbed blind by one of our own, when I was made painfully aware that small also means vulnerable, alone, and without a parental unit to turn to for advice, comfort, or money. But on most days, I loved being a small but interesting fish in Philadelphia's big cultural pond, remained committed to the challenges at Rosenbach, and received the notices of impending retirements with little more than fodder for professional gossip. I had only changed jobs once before, when the Rosenbach offered me a job for which I did not think myself yet qualified. And I figured when fate was ready for, to write my name again, someone would let me know. While waiting, I often mused that I liked being thought of as a leader or even a change agent to use new management speak. It sure beat being called meddlesome and upstart, names I surely earned back at the Humanities Research Center in Austin when I started most of my sentences with, well, if I ran this library. Hmm. But I also realized that by becoming a library director at the relatively young age of 32, I had limited my future options. I figured once you'd been in charge, no one for whom you would want to work would be dumb enough to hire you to work for them. By coincidence, about this time, I was asked to participate by ALA in their effort to update the standard job aptitude profile for librarians. In exchange for answering hundreds of tedious questions about my likes and dislikes, I received the results of the test just as if I too had been seeking career advice. Because my answers had been made part of the new standard for librarians, library director was listed as first among the careers I might be good at, followed by head of a private school and IRS agent. <laughs> Apparently, my need to be in a position of authority is easily measured. The thought of applying for the position as president of the Antiquarian Society didn't cross my mind, however, until one evening in January of 1992, when I bumped into Marcus at the Grolier Club annual meeting. Drinks in hand, we chatted away, and I inquired no nosily about the search for his successor. I don't know. I'm not on the committee, he bellowed above the din of the cocktail chatter. But if you haven't applied, why not? I assume that was his standard response to all inquirers. Gosh, I stammered, I can think of lots of reasons. And I listed a few, each revealing a bit more about what I had assumed the desired qualifications to be. I'm not a knowledgeable book person. I'm not a scholar. Um, I'm not a collector. Uh, I've never been a part of the AAS community. I've never even been to Worcester. And hesitating only slightly, I blurted out, I'm not even a man. <laughs> Nonsense, Marcus roared, or words to that effect. You know about great research libraries, don't you? You appreciate the value of scholarship, don't you? You're not scared to ask people for money, are you? Well, that's what the job's about. Well, I don't remember my exact reply to that, or even if Marcus waited to hear it. But it was about then that gears started slowly turning in my brain. Now, we all know that speculation about job searches is one of the chief forms of entertainment in our little world, and also that there is a protocol that many searches follow of nominations, applications, 
interviews, short lists, site visits, etc. As I knew many had, who had already been interviewed for the AAS job, one or two had already been told politely thanks but no thanks, and others who were scheduled yet to be seen by the committee, I assumed that the search was fairly far along. So I was a bit surprised to receive, a few weeks after my exchange with Marcus, one of the You Have Been Nominated letters. Gosh, I wondered, did the post writer from Worcester take a wrong turn in New Jersey and get this letter to Philly a bit late? The AAS search had even the most seasoned observers of searches a bit stumped. No one among my sources had a handle on what the committee was looking for or where they were in the process. I even called on one friend, a member of the AAS, who had been listed as a member of the search committee in the early call for nomination letters, but whose name had been dropped from the committee roster in the letter I received. Always looking for intrigue, I thought he might have like quit the committee in disgust and would be ready to spill his guts. Duh. It never occurred to me that he had dropped out so he could be a candidate, but he was too kind to tell me that himself when I called. Having exhausted my sources, I decided to do a dangerously grown-up thing and simply call the man who had signed the You Have Been Nominated letter, the secretary of the search committee. Yes, we're still interested in receiving applications, he assured me after a few brief pleasantries. But may I give you a bit of unsolicited advice, he added. If you really want this job, why don't you say so in your application letter? We are getting pretty tired of wading through all these letters from people telling us how much they like the job they already have. And we're not too interested in anyone who we have to beg even to apply for this one. Well, by now, I was more intrigued than ever. Maybe the Antiquarian Society was not so stuffy and hidebound a place as I had imagined it from afar to be. And the reading that I did from the, about the Society over the next few weeks or days made me even more interested. If the HRC at Texas and the Rosenbach were wannabe research libraries, here was the real thing. An institution which was still pursuing with vigor and confidence the mission that it had taken on some seven generations earlier, the collecting, preserving, and making accessible comprehensive collections of Americana, one copy of everything printed in America through the year 1876. I sent off my letter full of enthusiasms for whatever challenges the AAS might hold for me, as I had not a clue as to what they might be, and a modestly boastful recitation of the skills I would bring to the job. I didn't act hard to get, but stated about eight times that I would be honored to be even considered for the position. When they called back the ne very next week to schedule an interview, I was thrilled. When I learned that the interview would be but one hour in length, and would not take place until six weeks hence in mid-April, I figured I had my homework cut out for me and no excuse not to do it. There would be no time for me to ask questions of them. That was for certain. What I learned about the society further fascinated me, especially as I reviewed the majestic sweep of its institutional history. From its founding in 1812, the organization had been shaped by high ideals, to enlarge the sphere of human knowledge and to improve and interest posterity, as well as by practical Yankee thinking. Yes, they intended AAS to be a national historical organization, 
the first national historical organization. But it was 1812, and they didn't want to be bombed by the British fleet, so they sighted it safely inland, where we have remained safely hidden ever since. More to the point, I noted that it seemed they had never fired any director, nor had any AAS leader sought a position elsewhere. Marcus was retiring after 32 years there, having succeeded Clifford Shipton, who had stayed 28 years, and Clarence Brigham, who presided 51. I guess Clifford Shipton would have stayed longer, but he had to work at Harvard two days a week, and it probably cut into his schedule a bit. Edmund Barton, of whom little note is taken today, deserves credit, I figure, for showing up to work for 42 years uh, from 1866 to 1908 and for succeeding Samuel Foster Haven, who served in the head job for 43 years. Although starting at a more advanced age than most of those characters, I was all of 40 by now. At least I stood a fighting chance to get vested in the retirement plan, I reckoned. But at best, I considered myself a long shot for the job. After all, I had taken but one survey course in American history in college. At least it was the first half. And my friend, Jim Green, had had to take me aside privately over a lunch at the Rittenhouse Diner to explain to me who this guy Bernard Balin on the committee was. I was truly clueless about American history. So when I said in the interview, if given this opportunity, I would not try to force a preconceived agenda of my own upon the society, I wasn't wolfing. <laughs> I had but little option to present myself as myself because I had no inkling what they wanted me to be otherwise. Did they want to maintain the status quo? Well, I hardly saw myself in Marcus McCorson's image, but I believed heartily in the values he espoused and was awed by all that he had accomplished. Or did they want something different? And if so, what? The conversation around the table at the interview went well enough, in spite of the fact that they outnumbered me 11 to 1. But as I rambled on platitudinously, I suddenly said something that sort of set off a chain reaction among the committee. I think I said something fairly simple, like, I don't think an institution can hold itself aloof from the community and wonder why it doesn't get support. But whatever I said, it produced a visible reaction from one of the members who jerked up his head and looked knowingly across the table to a fellow committee member, who glanced to the colleague at her right, who smiled wryly back to the fellow at my left, and around the table it went. It's like the duck came down or something. <laughs> whatever chord I struck resonated throughout the remaining minutes of my hour with the committee, and I left Boston with the feeling of optimism, which I was at pains to explain logically to family or friends back home. Those who have gone through job searches with children can perhaps relate to this. Our daughter was then 10, too old to be kept uninformed about why I was going to Boston. It was just an interview, we explained. And then when I had to return the next week for a second interview, well, it's just, a sec it's just another interview. The search process is a long and complicated one. This is the way it works. But don't get excited. Don't start crying. We're not moving. And yet I knew from the way the second interview went that maybe we were. Even the coach check guy at the Algonquin Club told me that I was the odds-on favorite is the way he figured it. <laughs> and I figured he knew as much as anyone at that point. Then I, 
When I got a call a few days later asking me to come to New York to discuss the job offer, oh, that was good, they were willing to meet me halfway, my daughter was by my side at the phone passing me anxious notes. Are you on the short, short list now, she said. (laughs) Part two, being new. It was arranged that we would come to Worcester in time for Libby to start sixth grade. I would be on staff beginning September 1st, although Marcus was not going to relinquish the reins until after the annual meeting in late October. For those two months, I was there, but not there. I was introduced to everyone, but met with no one. I referred to myself as the lady in waiting. But those weeks in limbo afforded me an excellent opportunity for observation and reflection. And of course, the staff had a chance to check me out too. As in many organizations, there was terminology to learn, like the difference between members and fellows, the distinctions between incorporators and counselors. When was it a symposium or a colloquium? There were acronyms to decipher, NAPE and CAPE, WAMIT and FIBAC and of course names and faces to memorize. I did my best to riddle out the mysteries of the budget and to understand who played what role in all the important work of managing the all-important endowment. With all the festivities honoring Marcus upon his retirement, it was hardly a typical time at the society, but I felt I was getting a feel for the rhythm of the place. And yet weeks passed before I had even the most basic notion of how it really worked. Where were the tensions and frictions? What were the real issues? It seems to glide on its rails so effortlessly and efficiently. Every staff member seemed to go confidently about his or her own job. Issues of turf and authority never at issue. Even after I was officially in charge, the am I really needed here feeling remained. One day, I walked up the front sidewalk of the library and saw a huge crane hoisting an air conditioner compressor upon the roof. Uh, I must have had a quizzical look on my face. After all, given the role I had played at the Rosenbach, I was surprised that I hadn't been up there working the riggings myself. But the building superintendent hollered down in reassurance, Don't worry, Ellen. It's in my budget. Well fed, Marcus departed for a year-long stay at the Huntington. You know, here's Worcester, here's San Marino. Pretty good idea for both of us, we thought. And the, well, it's up to you now, girl, feeling settled around me. A, feeling, a meeting to reassure the staff that there were no global changes or draconian measures in the works was, of course, the standard first order of business. But I then turned my attention to the press as I knew that the local reporters were eager to write me up and would be pushing me on what my agenda for the society was. So what are you going to change, they'd ask. What's going to be newsworthy about your administration? I'd seen other colleagues fall victim to this treatment, the regrettable result being that a nice story about the new becomes unintentionally a repudiation of the old. But I had a secret weapon, a surefire way to throw any blood-seeking news hound off the trail. The obvious hook for the story about me was that 
I was the first woman to be the head of the American Antiquarian Society, an organization once so male only that the first woman elected to membership, Esther Forbes, was deemed worthy only after she had won the Pulitzer Prize. And when the gender gambit had run its course with a reporter, there was always the, well, how's a Texan like you going to cope with our winters to turn to? When it came to matters of change, however, I didn't want to show any of my real cards before I had to. A wise poker player or a good bluffer never does. Part three, time to declare. As luck would have it, the showdown for this poker player came more quickly than I might have chosen. But the size of the pot at stake made it worth the gamble. For some months, the Lila Wallace Reader's Digest Fund had been working with the Folger, the Morgan, the Newberry, and the Huntington, our closest brothers in the Independent Research Library fraternity, on a series of special grants to advance significantly what Wallace called the public dimension of your institutional activity. They wanted to kind of, you know, liven and soften these places up. And now, I was on, now that I was on board, they invited AAS to join the initiative, intimating that they were looking for a proposal in the 500,000 plus range. It was a one-time offer, they explained, now or never. And they were looking for significant changes. We would have nine months from the day I took office to get the proposal devised, honed, approved by our own council and negotiated through their staff in time for their board meeting. Yes, we all know of these miracles that happen in nine months, but they don't involve committee work. Now, the real question, of course, was, did we want our public dimension enhanced at all? The society had come a long way from the days within memory of some when Mr. Shipton wouldn't let anyone with less than a PhD into the reading room at all. But even I didn't think we were ready for busloads of school kids whooping through the rotunda. Our scholarly lecture series had been open to the public without charge for some time, although I wasn't certain that the topics had always been picked with the general public's interest in mind. And our donor base, aging though they were, were continuing to give and give generously, although the question of where our next generation of givers was going to come from was on my mind. More significantly, stories of once great institutions, which had been driven to the brink of bankruptcy by attempting to refashion themselves to appeal to the fickle fashions of public participation, were all too well known, the Newberry being a prime example of an institution which had spread itself too thin and was suffering the consequences. And of course, we couldn't simply mimic the proposals being developed by our fellow libraries. We are not part of a museum, a theater, a public garden, as they are. AAS is nothing less than a great library. And Worcester is a wonderful place but it bears only slight resemblance to New York, Washington, Chicago, and San Marino. We needed time to explore and build consensus, and yet the Wallace clock had already begun to tick. I would not have my first meeting with the council, the board that I was hired to work under, until January, but I needed to make the decision now. Of course, I well remembered that sympathetic chord my comment about the institution holding itself aloof from the community 
had hit in the interview. So on the strength of little more than that incident alone, hardly a ringing mandate for change, I decided to set the process of change into tentative motion. Now we all know that change or even the possibility or threat of change is a potent force and its power must be carefully channeled. Only a few weeks into my new career, my first task was to build a strong partnership with those in key leadership positions reporting directly to me, our librarian, our vice president for academic and public programs, and our vice president for development. Between them, they had 60 years of experience, and I knew I was placing myself and at the Antiquarian Society, I mean 60 years of experience. So I knew that I was placing the planning process in capable hands. By nature, I am predisposed toward chaos. The doors open, anyone who wants to solve, join in this problem solving is welcome to attend the meeting. But at this point, my lieutenants needed to know where they stood in this new organization. And I was happy to meet with them behind closed doors. I told them to bring to the table all the good ideas they had ever had for AAS. New programs, service improvements, changes in staff structures, building modifications, things which in the past there simply wasn't money or enthusiasm enough to make happen. It's up to you, I told them, to broker what we are planning with the rest of the staff. We call the process Wallaceizing. Here's a good idea. Can we, make, can we make it fit into the Wallace guidelines? While we were talking inside, we were also soliciting opinions outside. We hired consultants to survey our major donors as if for a capital campaign feasibility study to seek an objective reading on the issues we faced, including those that might be too closely enmeshed in the leadership transition to come through clearly if I alone had been the one asking the questions. That gave us a list of kind of hot-button issues and told us how much money we stood to gain or lose depending on which way we might choose to, to decide on any of those issues. At the same time, I made similar calls to all the local corporate funders. There are not that many in Worcester. The stakes were a lot lower, but it was like meeting with the Chamber of Commerce and the Rotary Club all at once. And I asked them whether what they thought about the programming at the Antiquarian Society and found that there was universal support for a broader agenda of public offerings. Almost all that I called on signed up practically on the spot to help make a forthcoming lecture series on Jefferson at 250, a series which we had had on the books for some time, a more successfully promoted community-wide offering. And I was pleased that we could report the following year to them that because of their contributions, we had attracted standing room only audiences for all six of the presentations. Meanwhile, I brought in every expert who owed me any favor at all to talk with our little planning group about the obvious relevant issues, just to get our thinking going. We talked with experts in publishing, in media programming, in the new technologies of digitized and networked information, as well as those knowledgeable in the promotion of historical organizations and in current needs in humanities research and teaching. We were unanimous in thinking that we would propose only those things that supported and enhanced our role as a research library. We were not, for instance, intending to become a museum. 
Every facet of the plan addressed one of two critical goals, to broaden public awareness, appreciation, and support of the society, its collections, and core programs, and second, to enhance our ability to discharge that important dual responsibility, making our collections accessible to a growing audience of readers now while preserving them as a national library of record for future generations. We didn't want to be less of a library, but more of one. That was our answer to Wallace's charge to advance our public dimension. We didn't want simply to entertain the public. We wanted them to be engaged in fascinating ways so that they might come to understand and appreciate just what does go on in the reading room every day and why it is so important for society at large that historical collections are made freely available for research, study, and teaching. But when the staff and I stopped and looked at the list of projects which we intended to propose to Wallace, a list which, by the way, now totaled almost twice the dollar figure our program officer had suggested, we worried that we might have gone too far and too fast. I mean, handicapped access improvements and additional electrical plugs in the reading room for laptops, that didn't sound too too radical, but how about uh, research fellowships for artists, novelists, playwrights, and dancers? Or a radio variety show to bring to life news, humor, music, and literature from a year of American history? Or, most shocking of all, a sign out front of the building that would include the word, visitors welcome. <laughs> Our list also included design and printing of new promotional materials, greater internet access, expanded public programming, more strategic use of media outlets, and in keeping with our general strategy of creating programs that bring mediators and multipliers of historical knowledge into contact with our collections, a variety of offerings for teachers at the pre-collegiate level. Well, this is all pretty standard stuff for most libraries, I know, but it was altogether new and different for AAS. Our interviews with donors and our preliminary conversations with our counselors all indicated that changes of this sort would be welcomed by many and well tolerated by most. But I watched the draft proposals being mailed out to our council members and I worried that they would think, what they would really think when they saw the real details of what we were proposing. I didn't mind being the first woman president hired, but the first president ever fired, well that would be tough. <laughs> Can you imagine my surprised relief to receive this feedback from them. Sure, great. Well, isn't this the stuff we hired you to do? Aha, I sort of backdoored my way into it, but now I had a mandate for change. We finally negotiated with Wallace a $750,000 grant. The staff quickly climbed aboard, and while we haven't yet finished the entire transformation process, all agree that the endeavor has, been, has enhanced the society in ways that we could hardly imagine when we first took on the Foundation's invitation. Most significantly, this work of broadening the audience we serve without diluting the strength of our core mission has proven to be a significant factor in our preparation for a capital campaign we are about to launch, a campaign that will strike at the very heart of the purpose of the Great Research Library, more endowment for acquisitions, more book space, more, book, more stack space for books. And now, part five. I would like to end, part four, excuse me. I would like to end these remarks by hearkening back 
to a beginning. Each year, the Antiquarian Society holds two membership meetings. The October meeting is held in Worcester, and the April meeting is held away so that our members from around the country might participate more readily and our Worcester members might enjoy a bit of spring traveling, having been snowbound in their homes for months. The April 1993 meeting, the first meeting of my presidency, was held here in Charlottesville, right here in the dome room of the Rotunda. The chief duty of the president at these meetings is to present the report of the council, recounting the accomplishments of the society since the last meeting. I have always found these rather intimidating to write because when they are published in the proceedings, my meager mouthings have to stand aside, alongside reports from the likes of Clarence Brigham, you know, just completed the History and Bibliography of American Newspapers, 1690 to 1820, last month, or Clifford Shipton, oh, manage the last of the Evans and Shaw Shoemaker microform series. Of course, we had to invent microprint technology and borrow 30,000 of the 90,000 titles from other libraries, but it wasn't much trouble. <laughs> or the many reports of Marcus McCorrison in which are documented his truly pioneering work in the development of machine-readable cataloging for special collections. The 11 of these reports that I have presented to date come across in my own quirky style, but I think I have yet to write a better paragraph than the one which opens the very first report of my tenure. And since I now stand at the very podium from which I read it first, let me close by reading it again. Traditions of the past, tactics for the future. For more than seven generations, the American Antiquarian Society has maintained a strong tradition of far-sighted and forward-looking leadership planning carefully and creatively to meet the research needs of future readers. It is an extraordinary record of dedication, innovation, and foresight extending over 180 years. From Isaiah Thomas and Christopher Columbus Baldwin to Haven, Brigham, Shipton, and McCorrison. Generation after generation, these leaders of the society have faced new challenges seized new opportunities, embraced new technologies, yet remained steadfast to the mission of developing and preserving a great library and making it freely available for research and understanding of our national history and culture. With confidence in the institution's past, they added strength to strengths. Out of concern for its future, they made difficult decisions and took bold initiatives. The Society's Library is their remarkable legacy, and I am honored and greatly humbled to have been asked to take a turn as its steward. Thank you very much. know that this is indeed a magic room. I hope you'll come and join the speaker in a reception that follows immediately in the first floor staff lounge in the Alderman Library and have a look at the dinosaurs on your way out. <laughs>